Hey everyone, it's Maurice. If you've been listening to the show and you like what you hear, you can become a patron of Revision Path today. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and you can join at the $5 level to get behind the scenes exclusive access on upcoming interviews, new articles, and episodes of our special patrons only podcast. Join at the new $20 level and you'll get everything at the $5 level plus a free Revision Path logo enamel pin plus a swag pack full of goodies. So check it out today, patreon.com forward slash revision path. This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook undoubtedly has some of the top designers in the world working under one roof. But what does it take to be a designer there? I asked product designer Steven Song to find out. You know, tech companies, and especially the larger ones, like, you know, they have such a big responsibility for, you know, what, how the world's shaped, you know, how legislation is formed, and also, like, whose voices, you know, get promoted and whose don't. And so it's, it's so important, you know, that underrepresented minorities, you know, black, brown, and native people and queer people, especially, like, you know, make sure that their voices get heard and considered in how products get developed. Because otherwise, like, you know, if we want to become a net good in the world, we have to be able to make sure that we uplift everybody's voices, especially at a place that has such a big impact on the world. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. Are you looking for a job? Are you looking to hire someone for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, College Vine in Cambridge, Massachusetts is looking for a senior product designer. And Glitch is looking for the following positions for their New York City office. An office administrator, a social media specialist, a VP of people, and a lead editor and apps writer. If you're looking to diversify your designer dev teams, post your job listing with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you through our podcast and our weekly job alerts. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get to this week's interview, I wanted to read this review that we have from Apple Podcasts. It's a new review. This comes from T. Lynn Creative, and it's titled A1. Here it is. Insightful. Maurice demystifies being black in design with a keen sense of perspective. From industry titans to emerging innovators, you're sure to find inspiration and discover gems mixed with humor and much-needed depth. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much, T. Lynn Creative. I love, I love reading reviews. I love hearing from y'all. More of you all should leave reviews so I could read them on the show. Although... I'd read them in the intro and then that would make the intro longer, but we'll, we can, either way, what I'm saying is I love the review. Thank you so much, T Lynn Creative. Uh, if you want to review the show, anyone out there that's listening, please review us on Apple Podcast, rate us five stars, and we'll read your review right here on the show. Now let's talk about our sponsors, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. 
Glitch is the friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. I'm talking cutting edge VR experiences, smart bots, useful tools to solve problems at work, there's games, there's apps that help advance important causes, I mean, you name it. People have built over a million projects on Glitch for you to discover, and new ones are popping up every single day. Get started on making something awesome today at Glitch.com. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and their design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's leading marketing platform for small businesses. Now, MailChimp may have started out doing just mail. I mean, it's, it's in their name, MailChimp. But now you can use it for Facebook ads. You can use it for Instagram ads. You can do a lot of powerful automations. It's all tied into your list. It's really something. I mean, you really have to think of MailChimp now as more like a marketing powerhouse for your business and not just a place where you send out email. So if you're thinking about it, if you have a business, if you want to try it out, sign up for a free account today and give them a try. MailChimp. Send better email. Now for this week's interview. We're talking to Aaron Glean, a graphic designer, art director, and entrepreneur in Cebu City in the Philippines. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Aaron Glean, and uh, I'm a graphic designer in the Philippines in Cebu City. So, of course, I really want to talk about what the culture is like there in the Philippines for design, how you got there, etc. But for now, let's let's bring it back to the U.S. Uh, where are you originally from? Riverside, California. Okay. What was it like growing up in Riverside? Oh, as a kid, you just kind of wanted to get out. <laughs> but um, <laughs> as an adult, I appreciate Riverside so much more now. My parents still live there, and I go back once in a while to, to visit them. But as a kid, you just remember hot summers. And either trying to go away to college to get out or after college, find a job somewhere else because it was it was hot at the time. There wasn't much to do there. But now Riverside seems to be like a booming place since uh, UCR developed a lot of the land around the university there. Yeah. Now, as an adult, I think I would probably retire there. <laughs> OK. And UCR is University of California, Riverside? Yes. OK. Gotcha. So growing up there, you kind of always wanted to leave. I know that feeling all too well. I grew up in a in a fairly small town, too. What was the aha moment for you when you knew that design was something that you wanted to do? I think there was a couple of those type of moments. My first moment was in high school when my high school counselor asked me what I wanted to do. And she's the one who kind of convinced me to go to college. And then she started asking me about my hobbies. And I was like, well, I like to draw, I like computers, stuff like that. And so she was like, she introduced me basically to the field of graphic design and says, you should really check this out if those are the things that you like to do. And after I started looking into it, I was like, like, wow, I want to get paid to draw on a computer all day, you know? Yeah. And so as a high school kid, that's how I simplified it. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until I think I was a junior in college and my college professor for graphic design, we would have these critiques and he was very harsh in his critiques and was in one of those critiques. I thought, wow, like this guy has this much experience 
and this much knowledge in his head to figure out what is wrong with our projects to make them better that I want to be him. I want to be able to do that. I almost thought it was like magic until like basically we sat with him and he just told us exactly how he does it, why he does it, how to fix things. You know, when you're in college and you get a critique, you just, you totally take everything personal, but you got to let that go, especially in design because we sell our product. After figuring that out from him, I was just kind of like, yeah, like, like I want to be able to fix and solve people's problems the same way he did in our critiques. So, and to see that we can actually fix other people's problem visually doing that, I was like, yeah, I'm all in. Where's my first job? (laughs) So it sounds like creativity was probably a big part of your childhood. Did your parents really kind of support you in this as well? My dad, he liked to draw and kind of was was an amateur photographer. So he, he had an eye for, you know, everything creative. So I kind of got it from him. And then my mom, she was funny. No matter how many times I explained it to her, she always thought I was going to be like an art teacher. And even to this day, I still think like she's still not quite sure what I do, but she knows I can make a living from it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think uh, I explained it to my mom. I was like, yeah, I, I do branding. Uh, I make websites and stuff like that. But it's not until like she needs a flyer for something that she kind of gets it, you know? <laughs> I mean, look, if mom's happy, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Cause totally. sometimes, yeah. sometimes winning over the parents or at least having them understand, you know, kind of what it is that you do can be tricky. You know, it really can, especially I think for black designers, it can be tricky because what we do is often kind of seen as a hobby and not really yeah. a career. So at least it's yeah. good that she kind of understands <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> uh, what, what, yeah. Was, what was your time like at college? You mentioned this professor. It sounds like you, I don't know, maybe you had a pretty good time there? I did. Uh, I think I, I made a lot of uh, lifetime friends there in my design class. My professor, George McGinnis, he would like, he would teach two levels of design classes in a semester, and I would sneak into the higher one and sit around in there and see what they were up to versus my own class. And so he would kind of get on me about like procrastinating on my projects to see what the level above me was doing, you know, (laughs) but it was totally awesome. I went to Cal State San Bernardino and at first I always felt, you know, it was a Cal State and it's not really like the art center or going to an art school, but I think because the program was so new when I went that it had that art school feel like we would camp out in the computer lab all day, all night. You know, I mean, one of my friends brought in like this dorm refrigerator and we just would have lunch there, uh, (laughs) dishes rack and everybody brought their mugs and we had coffee. I mean, we never left that place. Wow. I mean, it sounds like it was pretty good then. I mean, that those sorts of experiences, I feel like kind of build memories, kind of build character in a way, you know? Yeah, totally. It did. And even to this day, I still reach out to some of my college friends just to get advice about projects or, you know, just to see what they're up to. I mean, if I was still back in the States, we'd probably have barbecues. Mm -hmm. 
Well, let's talk about this move to the Philippines because I'm really, I'm really curious about kind of what drew you there. So you graduate from San Bernardino. I'm assuming you're working, you know, as a designer in LA. What sparked this move to this other country? I think it was one of those life changing moves where you kind of reflect like what you've done in the past. And I think I was at a point where I was trying to challenge myself a little bit more for the past, let's see, maybe about four or five years. I've worked for myself. And prior to that, I worked at uh, the University of Southern California as an art director. And so I was very comfortable. When I graduated college, I always wanted to get out of Riverside, but like I didn't move very far. I, my first job was in Orange County. My second job was in Chino. And then I ended up moving to Pasadena. So my comfort zone was Southern California, and I never really went that far out of it. I loved traveling when I was able to, even for one of my jobs, they sent me all over the place. So I didn't mind doing any of that, but I was just, I never traveled anywhere where I was going to meet somebody or even just live. The longest trip I ever took, I think I was 34 and I backpacked in Scotland. And a friend of mine said, aren't you supposed to do that when you're like 20? (laughs) You know, so I was like, yeah, but you know, I mean. I figured out that I need to get out of my comfort zone now. So I started taking those trips. And then how I ended up in the Philippines was a high school friend of mine. He's originally from the Philippines. He moved here right after he got out of college. And every year he would just come back to the U.S. and he would invite us to stay at his house. And, you know, he said, don't worry about anything. Just just come and visit, you know, see if you guys like it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, being at that point, in my career where I was working for myself and I was basically sitting on the couch thinking I can work anywhere. So why do I need to be here? And so one day I just took him up on it and was like, Hey man, what's a good amount of time to stay? And he's like, Oh, you know, stay as long as you want. uh, Eventually it just snowballed into moving and got rid of my apartment, sold my car, got rid of my stuff. I gave all my art supplies to all my artsy friends, so they're really stoked about that. And my <laughs> record collection passed it to my friends that love collecting records, and it just took off. Everything I own is in three bags. Wow! So you went for vacation and just kind of stayed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm. I guess I'm. I'm really curious about that whole process. Like, what was your mindset like? during all that. Like I I get what you're saying, you know, I've worked for myself and I know that feeling of you can work from anywhere. And that's always I feel like that's always a thing that sometimes we tell ourselves to kind of not feel like we're in a rut. Like I can work anywhere. But we don't necessarily (laughs) cash in on that. You know, the anywhere may be I can work from this couch or someone else's couch. Or I could work from my kitchen table (laughs) to the coffee shop. But not I can work here in the US or in another country. So you're over there, I guess you're kind of learning about the culture and everything. And I don't know, like what was going through your minds when you finally decided like, this is what I need to do. Oh man. It was like, I want to say it was probably maybe four to, yeah, it's probably about four or five months 
when I was like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. It really didn't kick in until like maybe two months out because I bought a one-way ticket. And it didn't kick in until that date started getting closer. And so originally I started thinking like that. If I could work anywhere, well, let me just go to a different coffee shop. Let me just try this. If I don't like, I'll just go for vacation. If I don't like it, I'll come right back. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But as I was trying to convince myself that working anywhere or like heading to another coffee shop, that would still be my comfort zone, that Mm -hmm. I'm not pushing my limits or boundaries of what I can do and what I can see. I've done a lot of traveling around the U.S. I've been to Japan a couple of times. I've been to England a handful of times all around Canada and Mexico, but I've never lived anywhere else besides Southern California. I had a friend that lived in San Diego for many years. And anytime he called up, I would go down there and hang out. And I even thought about moving down to San Diego, but it was so much still my comfort zone that I was like, I need to experience something different. So Basically, I went down the list of friends I knew that lived in different countries or had some type of connection that lived in different countries and was like, well, let me try vacation first. So you kind of couch surfed a little bit. Yeah, well, I was planning to, you know, and so, but that still, to me, like, it was still like that little knock at the back in my head at the door saying, that's still your comfort zone. You're going to be on vacation. Like you can quit anytime you want and go back to your comfortable life in Southern California. So moving really was like the ultimate push to get out. Like if I'm going to make it, I have to force myself to make it. You know what I mean? That was one of the reasons why I really felt that that I kind of needed to go beyond my limits and just go ahead, take the giant leap and move to the Philippines. Wow. So what is a typical day like for you there? I mean, I know that you have your studio there. So mm-hmm. What's a regular day like for you? Oh, it's wild. Some days it's wild. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, when I first got here, I started building up a network of uh, you know clients and freelancers and stuff like that. And so I've been very fortunate and blessed that a lot of my friends that live here have passed my name around to other people. So I've gotten a lot of work. Now, like my typical day, I'll probably get up about like 8.30, something like that. I'll check email, that long list of emails, delete all that junk, and I'll have that two or three emails from clients. They'll ask probably about what what the status is on their logo or status on the website, something like that. I'll answer a couple of those, and then I'll either head to like a co-workspace for meetings or sometimes just to get out, I'll head to a coffee shop. But majority of my time, I spent at my house, working out of my house. And uh, I'll just crack open the laptop and start working on a website or some type of logo. One of my motivations, or I call it my cheat time, is like watching Chef's Table or something. Because it's very inspiring. So it helps keep stay motivated. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I do stuff like that. And uh, so I'll I'll knock out an hour of chef's table and then I'll just get right back on it to like uh, working on a website or branding, make a couple of calls, shoot out some emails. And then my day usually ends probably about like three o'clock or four. The work time here, it's pretty long. And so I've had to actually train my clients 
on the hours I work, you know. So when I say my day ends about three o'clock, that means I really stop checking emails, but I'll probably continue to work until like six. So I'll like open up another file and, you know, get moving on something else, or I'll check off a few things off the to-do list right at the tail end of the day. So it sounds like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it sounds like the routine is pretty much the same in, in terms of what you were doing. It's just that you're in a different country. Yeah, it's very much the case. It's just the type of clients that I deal with. There are some similarities from business owners here versus the U.S. What are some of those similarities? Well, some of the similarities is, of course, every business owner, they're not trying to spend a lot of money to get the design work out of you, you know, and some are trying to get you to do even twice as much, you know, that's pretty universal, you know, <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? So like they'll start off with the logo and then they'll move to the website, but they don't want you to requote it. They want you to just go ahead and do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. They want more. They want more for less basically. Yeah. That's that totally universal. The big difference between a Filipino client versus a U.S. client is there's a lot more educating them on the value of design than I would a typical U.S. client. As talented as a lot of designers are here, it's just that design work itself isn't valued. I've even talked to like furniture designers, interior designers, and they have gone through jump through many hoops to get to where they're at. And even their stuff isn't as valued, you know? Hmm. Interesting. Do you find that the clients are receptive to that knowledge? I've been so blessed. I honestly have to tell you uh, because <laughs> the, the type of clients that I've had are they're business owners, but some of them, they, they have dealt with other designers and they're, they want to try something new. And so some of them want to know, with a, about working with a Western designer versus a local designer. So that's why a lot of them will try me out. And then also they think that there's a mentality about Western work being a little bit more valued than local work. Interesting. Yeah. That's a, so, that's a really interesting point that you make there, uh, especially as I think about, and, and we sort of talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but I think it's interesting, especially when you talk about the value of design as it relates even to outsourcing work and stuff like that. Back when I had my studio, we outsourced a lot of work to Filipino developers and designers there. And yeah. it was great. The quality of the work was great. They were great to work with. And so it's interesting to hear that there in the country that the design culture, it seems like it's it's not valued which is kind of in the way like it is in the U.S. in some places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the only place that right now in the Philippines that has that understanding is probably Manila, just because a lot of the business development happens so fast there. But as you go south through the country and then closer to where I'm at, like the education of valuing design isn't there yet. It's starting to develop. But it's not there yet to the point where you tell somebody you're a graphic designer and they completely understand what you do or what you can actually do for them. Mm -hmm. That is so fascinating. 
again, relating to this conversation that we had before we started recording, back when I had my studio and I would, you know, listen to people talk about outsourcing work, finding virtual assistants and, and things of that nature. And it always struck me how people from the Philippines were always sort of referred to in terms of being like the optimal types of workers. Now, keep in mind, this is, I don't know if I want to go as far as to say it's racist, but it's pretty discriminatory. (coughs) I was watching this particular person on Creative Live talking about the value of remote workers from other countries. And I mean, he's, you know, white dude in the U.S. talking about this. So already there's a a skew there in the perspective. And he makes, I mean, upwards of probably 100,000 or more a year but outsources all the work. And he was saying, you know, it used to be that when you wanted to outsource work, you would talk to to Indian designers and developers, but you know, they've got a little bit too much ego. They're a little too surly. The best bet for your, your buck or something like that, like the best bang for your buck is going with, with Filipino workers. They're just, they're more docile. They're easier to get along with. And and to me, I was like, wait, what? Because it (laughs) sounded like he was describing like different animal breeds in terms of temperament and things of that nature, which is like, I don't know if I'm sensitive to that because I'm a person of color, but it really just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Cause I'm like, if the person can do the work, they can do the work. Like, yeah. I, I feel like yeah. that's what's most important. Not necessarily all this, this other stuff that you're talking about, but I don't know. Do you run into a lot of people there that are doing outsourced work for designers and developers in the States? Yes. There's a lot of local developers and designers that I've met. They're doing stuff for people in the States, Australia, uh, Shanghai. Some of them are getting paid what they're worth, which is Mm -hmm. good. But some of them aren't. Recently, I found a couple that are a development team, development team, and I would ask quotes for them. I met them at a business mixer. And the first time I asked them for a quote, I looked at him and I was like, are you serious? Like, this is really low, mm-hmm. you know, because I was thinking further in the future about if our partnership works, then there's going to be a lot more work. But the quote that they gave me was fairly low. And I was like, well, how about this? I pay you this or any quote that I ask for, we add this on top of it and you just make the work priority. Mm-hmm. Because you need to get paid what you're worth, and I know you're probably really good at what you do because of all the other sites that I've seen that you did. So let's make it worth your while because it was to the point where it, – it was one of those to the point where if somebody gave you a job and they said, yeah, can you do my logo for 50 bucks? And you know it's a friend of a friend, mm-hmm. you know, and you're like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And you put it off for months and months and months, and you just never do it, Yeah, you know? Because it's fifty dollars. So, yeah. So that's so. So I looked at him and I was like, "No, you guys, come on. Like, you guys have to understand. It's not just your skill set that's valued, but it's your time that needs to be valued as well. You know, it takes time about what you do. And I said, if I showed my client that, they're going to ask me why is my price so high, mm, and it's because true. I value my time way more. You know. So, yeah, so I, I bumped up their pay a little bit more. And so our partnership's working out pretty good so far. But I, overall, I find that uh, 
when I run into local designers, especially ones that are doing local work, that they don't quite understand that their time is also valuable. They might be able to do it fast and efficient, but the time that it takes for them to do it still is, it needs to be valued, you know? So yeah, that's one of the things I'm trying to uh, help designers here understand is that uh, they need to value their time, not just their skill set. I mean, their skill set and level of skill set is important, but you got to value your time on how you do your work. You can't take 20 jobs just to make up for like underpricing or, you know, lowballing your own self. That's not worth it. Look, there's a lot of designers in the U.S. that need that education for real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so true. I think I... I used to do that too, but you know, a couple of friends talked me out of doing that. <laughs> well, yeah, I feel like once you once you get that change in mindset, to I think the buzzword that I hear around it is value based pricing. But like really? once you get that mindset that like you know my time is important too, it totally changes the game. Because I think what will happen is at least here, and I don't know if it's the same way in the Philippines, but you know, especially if you're starting out, you may start out with just an hourly rate, and so when you're talking to the client they're making that mental math of like, okay, well, you know, it should take you two hours to do this. So it should only cost this much, but not thinking that, you know, that two hours may just be for labor, but you also have to research and you've got to, you know, sketch and you got to get to the point where you're starting to make the goods towards what the the end goal should be, like what the deliverable should be. You don't just jump right into a tool and get started. You kind of have to ramp your way up into it. And so that time that's spent to get there is just as important as the time it takes you to actually do it. Yeah. But sometimes what will happen is, and I see this a lot where designers kind of market themselves as just being like a great set of hands, like they can do the work, (laughs) but not really talk about their process. So it it Mm -hmm. can be a bit of a incongruity between wanting to be paid more but then you're also marketing yourself in a way that says I should only be paid this much. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think I had to teach myself a little bit of that with a lot of uh, friends influences. I had to figure out how to explain my process to my clients so they would understand because if you don't explain what you're doing, most clients just automatically assume it's a, it's a push of a button. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I, I had to do that, and I think that's probably where a lot of the educating the designer here is. So anytime I get like a young local designer, uh, I'll talk to them for a little bit and you know, try to see where they're at. But most of them, they just, they just want to do the work, and they just want to be productive and stuff like that. But I tell them, like, well, if this is your price rate, you're going to be doing this for 100 years. Yeah. You know? And you don't want to do that, you know. So I try to give them a, a couple of tips and say, hey, try it this way. See how it works, you know. Because I think the biggest fear for designers is losing clients. But another friend of mine, he told me, you know what? If your client is asking for work that low, you really don't need them. Yeah. So I try to tell designers here, I'm like, well, maybe that's not the clientele you actually need. And maybe you should probably go ahead and, bump up your rate a little bit and move to the next next person. Somebody will value your time just long as you do. Mm-hmm. So you're really out there like changing the culture. Try it. 
trying. I'm working on. Uh, a, I'm working on a couple of workshops. One, I wanted. I want to do a workshop for designers because I want them to be smarter designers. So I want to kind of give them the business of design. And then the other workshop I'm working on is for entrepreneurs, so they can value design. I want entrepreneurs to know that what designers do isn't just aesthetics. It's problem solving. Like we're solving a major problem visually of what they have. Those are the couple of workshops that I'm working on. And then in between in between my my work, I also teach at a high school graphic design to seniors. Oh, and so yeah, so you know, I'm trying to get the, the younger entrepreneurs to understand the value of design too. <laughs> no, that's dope. Have you by chance have you heard of the name Douglas Davis? Does that name sound familiar? Sounds familiar. So what kind, that, what kind of yeah, so Douglas Davis, he's um he's a friend of mine. That's the homie. He's friend to the show. He's based okay. out of Brooklyn. He's a a marketer. He's an educator. He's a art director, creative director. Like he does a lot of stuff. And he has a book. I think it came out a couple of years ago called Creative Strategy and the Business of Design. Actually, if you want to, like, go look back in our archives and find Douglas's interview. I want to say it's like episode. 157 ish or something like that. But anyway, that's a really good book in general because he also talks about kind of like the business skills that every creative needs in order to, you know, be successful, whether you're in house or whether you're freelancing. Like it basically shows the designer how to get into the mindset of the client or of the business person. So once you are able to kind of speak their language, then it's a lot easier to talk about your benefits and your values, and then you can charge more. And then the client understands it because you're speaking their language. Yeah. 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 Oh, that sounds like a good book. I'll pick it up. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Pick it up. Look it up. It's a, it's a, it's a really good resource. I've been telling a lot of people about it. I mean, and Douglas definitely knows his stuff, you know, so uh, definitely check that out. When you said you had to figure out how to explain your process, I feel like listeners out there probably are not at that point yet where they can do that, or maybe they want to know how they can get to that point. So what steps did you take to start to open yourself up to be able to explain your process to clients? I think it took a lot of client interaction. Like anytime like you teach yourself stuff, it always takes a lot longer than if somebody tells you, you know? So for myself, what I had to do was basically I had a lot of client interactions. And I think it all stemmed back from like even job interviews. Like you have to explain in a job interview, like what your skill set and how you do it. But then as a designer to a client, you have to explain basically the skills that you have, what you did to get there, and why these are the options or solutions that best fits for that client. So, I mean, yeah, what I did was basically it was trial and error. Talk to a lot of clients. I asked a lot of my designer friends and say, hey, how do you describe your process? What do you do? I mean, how do you explain to a client that this is the logo that works for them? Or this is the site, the website that you made that will optimize what they need. And some of my friends were like, oh, well, basically, you just tell them how you got there. Say, this is why I did it. But I think it also goes back to what you said is that you have to speak their language. You can't just like do it in designer lingo. Oh, yes, I picked this type because this typeface mm. works 
this typeface and the client the client don't care. The client right. wants to know what it is that that typeface is actually going to do for them. Like, is it going to affect the bottom line? Is it going to make it easier for people to read to get to the buy button? Why this logo is in this typeface and does this? Yeah, you know. And so, yeah, it took me a little while and a few friends to figure out that I need to speak their language. So whatever my client does, that I kind of have to relate it to their business and what it does for them. A friend of mine, Chris Doe, he's a funny guy. He's very, very, yeah, future, right? Yeah, very, very intense, very intense guy. (laughs) But uh, he is almost a no nonsense kind of guy, but he's one of those guys that, kind of got me to like reevaluate the way I think when I talk to a client and not just speak designer lingo to my client. So yeah, I mean, because I think there was a pitch that he was doing and he was talking to me on how he, he explained it to his client. And I was like, you guys didn't talk about font. You guys didn't talk about, you know, the designerly <laughs> stuff. You know, right. you didn't you didn't tell them that you kerned this and the baseline was that. And, you know, <laughs> he's like, oh, man, no, I didn't talk about any of that. I, I said, this solution works for you because of X, you know, and it's going to bring you more customers because they're going to be able to read it faster. They're going to be able to do this faster and get to what you want them to do faster. Mm-hmm. So. I was like, wow, okay, makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so, yeah, so I think it does go back to a little bit of trial and error on testing it out with your clients on how they do it, but really doing the research on your client and figure out what they know, what they don't know. Some clients are a blessing and they know a lot about design and you don't have to explain a lot to them. But majority of the clients, they are experts in their business and that's what they know. And you need to jump into their world to figure that out, mm, yeah. to be able to explain your business to them. I totally agree with that. I mean, first of all, for people that are listening, I mean, Chris Doe and the work that he's doing with the future, even the work I think he did before that with the school with uh, Jose Caballero yeah. is, I mean, some of that stuff was really integral to me when I was starting out my studio to get mm. in that mindset of like, this is how I think about the business of design. Cause all that stuff you're talking about with fonts and kerning, like that's like stuff you do to other designers to show that, Oh, well I don't design. <laughs> and you tell that stuff to yeah. clients and it's like, what? They don't really get it. And, and I know when I started out, I was that same way because I thought saying all that stuff made me sound like a professional. And if anything, yeah. it just made me sound like a nerd. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I <know> the so now that you're, you know, it sounds like you are in a in a good place there in the Philippines. You're you're doing this work. You've got your your studio and everything together. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know, like, I don't know, are you satisfied creatively? Do you feel like with where you're at right now in your career that this is where you need to be? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. I think I think what makes me feel good and satisfied right now is that I'm helping local designers and local business people value design. I think right now that's what it does for me. Creatively, there's a million things that I want to do, you know, but like I think being here and the way the way their work schedule is, it allows me a little bit of breathing room to do passion projects to like get me that creative. 
I've had many discussions with a friend of mine who's a business owner who does uh, land developing. And it was kind of weird because like the first question he asked me, he goes, what kind of passion projects are you working on? Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, okay, that's a straight shot. Okay, I'll tell you. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I like photography and I was telling him I was taking some pictures of the local street vendors and stuff like that. And then we started talking about jumping on a jeepney. Uh, for those who don't know what a jeepney is, it's basically like a small little bus that transports people across the town. And they're called jeepneys because they cut up old military jeeps for the front of them and just stretched them out to hold more people. And that system is starting to phase out. And so he was like, well, with your photography, you should really like uh, dive deep into that because the jeepney system is going to phase out and you're making a historical recording of that. And, and for me, I was like, wow, that just really blew my mind. Like I can actually take more of my creativity and doing other stuff and other topics instead of just doing design stuff, you know, because it led our conversation led to doing, taking photos of that, to making a coffee table book, to putting out like a whole Instagram account of all kinds of like old jeepneys that are going to be phased out. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think the time that this place allows me to be able to tap into some of my like passion projects, I think it's going to get me to that place where I feel I've made my accomplishments, you know, where I'm like, wow, you know, and most of the time it's not stuff that's very big that impresses me. Like one of my passion projects that I want to do is I want to do branding for a sorry, sorry store. And for those who don't know what a sorry, sorry store is, basically it's almost like a hole in the wall store that's near the street or built off of somebody's old home that the owner just turned into a store. So people can walk by and buy like little things like gum, candy, soda, anything, you know? Yeah. And so in, in the Philippines, there's tons of them, you know, some of them, they use, um, corporate banners. So I don't know who does it, but a lot of corporations, they just go around and they ask the sorry, sorry store owner if they want to put their name up and if they would use their banner. And basically you have a Coca-Cola ad with the name of a sorry, sorry store. And I'm just like, <laughs> like, wouldn't you rather just have like a nice sign of your own? You know? So like, so one of my passion projects is to find uh, one of those store owners to say, you know what? I'll just, I'll brand everything for you for free. You know, you just got to print everything up and display it. You just tell me what you, what you need and we'll work it out, you know. So stuff like that would would make me feel like I've achieved a lot because I'm kind of not just helping that store owner, but I'm helping him see like the value of design and what it can do for him to bring in more customers. So yeah, so I think I'm not there yet. And I think I'm in the educational phase of the designer and the entrepreneur. Gotcha. You know? Yeah. What are um, you most excited I, about at the moment? I'm really excited about the development that is happening here, specifically in Cebu. Most people, when they think about the Philippines, they think about Manila, which is further up north. Uh, but Cebu is a little further south. 
and it's its own island, but Cebu City, that's where a lot of development is happening. There's a lot of traffic, which is just as bad as Manila. Uh, people complain about traffic, but I tell them it's a good thing. I, I tell them it's a lot of people moving here that are investing in the city. So that's why there's so many condos, so many malls, so many things that are being developed here. But that's a big opportunity for entrepreneurs to get in there and say, well, I'm going to open up a web development company here because all these companies that are starting to land here are going to need a website. Same thing. I've met uh, a lot of, I've met a lot of foreigners that moved here. Typically, there's two types of foreigners that move to the Philippines, the retired foreigner or the entrepreneur. And it's usually the entrepreneur is trying to outsource something. And the retired foreigner has been coming here since 1940, 1910. You know what I mean? And so the retired foreigner is actually kind of getting smaller compared to like the entrepreneur or the tech foreigner that's moving here. Just because one, outsourcing, it is a lot cheaper to outsource stuff here, but to start and run your business here is a lot cheaper, especially versus California. When I have my business in California, I'm not knocking California taxes, but... You kind of are. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, no shade. I mean, I'm thinking even here in Georgia, it's like that. I I get what you're saying. Yeah, so... I'm excited for all the new development and all the entrepreneurs that are moving here because I just see nothing but opportunity. And so I just want to be able to put like my stamp, the changes that are happening here, you know, where do you see design going in the future? And that can be, you know, there in the Philippines, which it sounds like you're really trying. It sounds like you're really kind of helping shape that with what you're Mm -hmm. doing with education. But like in general, where do you see, design going in the future? Because I feel like you have a very unique vantage point working in the States, having traveled so much, now living abroad. Where do you see this this uh, industry going in the future? Probably like it has been in the last 20 years. Everything's going digital. But I think, I think the new technology, like augment reality, uh, stuff like that, I think, I think new technology is going to make us design differently instead of we're doing digital ads for LinkedIn or Instagram. I think we're going to be doing digital ads for like, you know, augment reality that are going to pop up on the side of a building as you walk by. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it's going to be technology. I, and I'm, I'm still kind of a tech nerd. So I, I always keep, keep an eye on what's developing tech wise and stuff like that. And so I think in general that I think, Designers just really need to keep up with the how technology evolves. You know, there's always something new out every six months. Uh, if it's a faster phone or uh, face recognition on your phone or face recognition at a hotel to walk into a room. Mm-hmm. Like, I think those are the types of technologies that we're going to be designing for. It could be in the next five to ten years, you know. So, but it is around the corner, all of that stuff. And I think we just need to be prepared to be able to shift with it. I was just out in San Francisco earlier this month and two things there really kind of struck me when I was thinking about like, wow, this is the future. First, the hotel that I was staying at, Uh room service was delivered by a robot. 
that was oh, wow. like yeah that was really <laughs> it was wild it was sort of like this r2d2 ish sort of thing but and it would come to the door first you would get a phone call from the robot saying that he was at the door which very polite um and then you open yeah. the door and the robots there robots about i don't know maybe about four feet tall perhaps and it uh-huh. has like this little touch screen with a smiley face on it and you interact with it that way you sign the bill you take the food and then it kind of just putters on down the hall back to i guess it's charging station or something i don't know uh which of course <laughs> had me thinking of yeah. all sorts of questions like how do they program the robots to do that how does it get on the elevator like how does all this this stuff work secondly yeah. i was at youtube and i was there i was given a talk and i got to really experience their vr lab now i don't have a ton of experience with vr like i've got a google cardboard so i i know that much about vr but i haven't really like done it and worked with it and even with the work that i do at glitch we you know have people that have done web vr projects and stuff like that but this is my yeah. first time really like putting on a VR helmet display thing and interacting with it. And it was so cool. I cannot impress upon (laughs) you how cool it was to like, you see your hands, but instead of your hands, they're like monster claws or whatever. And even as you're talking, like with some of the games, even as you talk, your voice is digitally altered to whatever it's supposed to be in the game. And I was like, this is fascinating. Now, granted, I don't know if VR has gotten to the point where it's completely as consumerized to say just general like video game yeah. home console use, but it really got me to thinking about like who are the people that are designing this sort of stuff? Because yeah, things are moving towards virtual reality, AR. One of the most popular games out is Pokemon Go, which is, you know, all AR for the most part. Yeah. How do we get the skills to learn how to do that? Because certainly tech and design is sort of pushing towards that level of virtualization. And what I don't want to happen is that like black designers get left behind with all of that. Yeah. So yeah, I, t- I totally see what you're saying with that being kind of where things are going, but I mean that it, it blew me away. Both of those things blew me away. Cause I was like, damn, I, I was like, it's the same country. I just went, <laughs> I just went to San Francisco and it, it was yeah. wild. It was really wild. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What advice yeah, I, has uh, has? Oh, I'm sorry. I were you going to say something? Oh uh, yeah, I'm, I was just trying to think about like how do black designers keep up with that? Because I mean, basically, the things that I've been able to keep up with, you know, it's just either been like a passion to me. I know in school, like I would just sit next to the guy who was learning a new program and ask him to show me. You know what I mean? So I don't like. I really don't like to to be honest, I really don't know how black designers would be able to keep up with that because it's a lot of privileged things that, you know, universe private universities have that just accelerate learning. You know? Yeah. I mean, even even when I was there at YouTube, like they have a whole VR lab and they've got every single VR helmet and display. Of course they've got cardboard and daydream because those are both Google things, but like I got to try out the Oculus and the PSVR and all this stuff. And it's like, I wouldn't have, I don't know if I necessarily would have had that opportunity any other way to really at least get hands on experience with it like that. Yeah. Wow. That is, that's awesome. (laughs) What advice has stuck with you over the years that has kind of helped you along the way? Oh, wow. A lot. (laughs) There's a lot of advice I've gotten. Value your time, push your limits. There is probably, 
one piece of advice and it stuck with me forever. Like it's to this day. It, and I think it also beats out any other advice that I've gotten business wise from other people. And it's from my parents. Like I remember when I was a kid and I think I went to, I went to, where was it? A, I went to a pharmacy that had a photo development department and I dropped off some film, get it developed. And as a kid, you know, I didn't know how much developing this stuff costs. And so I dropped roll after roll after roll. And then when we go back with, I went back with my mom and she was shocked about how much it costs. She was like, well, didn't you know how much like each role was going to cost you to get developed? And I was like, no, <laughs> you know, like I'm a kid. What do I know? You know? <laughs> and so she was like, if you don't ask, you won't know. And I apply that to everything today. Anytime I went to an AIGA lecture or anything like that, and I knew that there was a veteran designer going to be there, mm-hmm. I would ask any question that like that, that was on my mind that day. Like I wanted to know like how they got from point A to point B with their pricing. I would be very specific about the question. Like I want to know how you went from the $1,000 client to the $10,000 client. And after the $10,000 client, how did you get to the $100,000 client? And if I never asked those questions, I wouldn't get the answer. You know, it took me a while to build up to that and apply that same like advice to it. But it all just kind of stemmed from that conversation I had with my mom. Like, if you don't ask, you're not going to know. And so uh, that also has helped me with pricing. Like, I used to go to a few AIGA conferences and stuff, and I would, I'd feel happy. I'd feel good. I'd feel inspired. But after like a week or two, I'd be like, I didn't get any answers that I wanted, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's when I kind of just started asking questions of like, hey, how did you get from here to here to do this? How did you get that client? Like, did you bump into them? Did networking help you? Did it not help you? You know? So I think it was that that one piece of advice that probably overrides all the others, or it actually helps all the other advice that I've gotten is basically ask the question that you want to ask, you know, because if you don't, you'll never know. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work do you want to be doing? Still designing. I joke with some of my friends when they ask this question, the ones that aren't designers. I tell them, you know what? If design just went out of business and no one cared about design, I probably wouldn't have another skill set to fall back on. I mean, I probably would, but jokingly, I just tell them I couldn't do anything else. Honestly, I love design that much. I'm that passionate about design that five years, 10 years, 50 years, I'm probably still designing some. Well, Aaron, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? There's a few different places that you can look. A lot of my personal stuff is at gleanhouse.com, G-L-E-E-N house.com. It was my company name when I was back in the States, and then I just kind of converted it to all my personal stuff. And then my my new company that I've developed out here is grayplus.co. So 
The website is grayplus.co, all spelled out. Instagram, same thing. Twitter, same thing. So they could just kind of tap me personally or professionally. All right. Sounds good. Well, Aaron Glean, I want to thank you so much, so much for coming on the show. I feel like certainly, you know, I think it's interesting to talk to a black designer that's in another country, certainly out there in the Philippines and learning kind of what you're doing there in terms of changing the design culture. But I think what's also most important is just the story of how you got there and how you realize that even with the work that you're doing now, this is not like the end point for you. You see that there's more on the horizon and more that you're doing. And I think it's really, really important that you're educating the design community and, you know, educating clients out there as to what the value of design is. Cause I feel like that's something which can help all of us in this industry as we, you know, kind of move forward. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Oh no, thank you. This is a, this is a great opportunity. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thoughts of love are and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Aaron Glean and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Aaron and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Also, thanks as always to our sponsors, Facebook Design, Glitch, Google Design, and MailChimp. Did you know that people spend over 3 billion minutes daily on Facebook? With an audience of over 2 billion users, that's pretty impressive. People use Facebook to share and connect with the people they care about, and their experience is the core of the Facebook design team. Sound interesting? Then learn more about Facebook design and what they do at facebook.com forward slash design. Glitch is a friendly community where everyone can discover and create the best stuff on the web. If you're new to Glitch, then just pop on over to the homepage and explore some of the featured projects or categories to try it out. It's like a familiar app store, but almost everything is created by regular people like you. I'm talking everyone from students just learning how to code to some of the best programmers at the biggest tech companies. They all use Glitch. Visit Glitch.com and create something awesome today. Google Design is a cooperative effort led by designers, writers, and developers at Google. They work across teams to publish original content, produce great events, and foster creative and educational partnerships that advance both design and technology. For more information on news, design resources, and the design podcasts, check them out at design.google. MailChimp is the world's largest marketing automation platform. They support millions of customers from small e-commerce shops to big online retailers, and they support the creative community as well, including us. You know, MailChimp really gives you the marketing tools to be yourself on a bigger stage. Visit MailChimp.com and sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. If you liked this episode, then please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute or two. It helps more people learn about the show here in the U.S. and internationally. It also helps the show by bumping us up in the rankings for design podcasts. And I'll even read your review right here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>